First John chapter five, turn there. We're going to finish our study of first John today. I hope you've been blessed. It's been a blessing to me. Last fall in Mature Living Magazine, which, by the way, I do not take or read, <laughs> uh, a woman sent in a story. Her name was Mary Mears, and she t- reflects on a visit of her four-year-old granddaughter, whose name was Dawn. And Dawn accidentally locked herself in Grandma's bathroom, and she got frightened, like a little four-year-old would do, and she began banging on the door, asking for Grandma to come and rescue her. Let me out, Granny, she would shout. Let me out, Granny. Well, Mary had to go and find a key to get the door open, so she was trying to comfort her granddaughter while the delay uh, went on and said, Honey, you're okay. God is in there with you. To which the little girl tearfully replied, Yeah, I know, but he wants to get out too. (laughs) Now, I love that. I love the idea that people can know what God wants. And I think John would love that. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm a little suspicious of people who always act like they know everything God is thinking. See, I'm a finite man, and I think I need to express my understandings of an infinite God with some degree of humility. But admitting we don't know everything about God is not the same thing as saying we can't know anything about God because we can. If Jesus is God wrapped in humanity, then I believe that faith in Jesus brings my understanding wrapped in certain certainties of which I can be very sure. That's what John thinks because now in five chapters, he has used one little expression 36 times. We know, not we suppose, we speculate, we wonder. 36 times, we know. And in fact, in the last nine verses that we're about to read, he's going to say it six more times. Because when it comes to what God has revealed in Jesus Christ, I want to know it all. I may not be able to know everything about God in my finite self, but everything God wants me to know in Jesus, I want to know. So let's start in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, as I said, when you start talking about God, you better have some humility. 
And it's presumptuous to go out there and speak for God where God hasn't spoken. But it's also presumptuous to, to tolerate uncertainty where God has made some things clear. And so John closes this letter with four things he wants you to be sure of. And the most important is the first one. He says, we know our salvation is settled. Now, I think this is the certainty in which all other certainties are grounded. If you don't know this one, the rest of what you know is pretty unimportant. He says, we know our salvation is settled. Look again at verse 13. I write this to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, let me tell you a great irony. When I was a boy, I was raised in a church that knew everything. We had all the answers to all the questions. How's Jesus going to come back? What does the Holy Spirit do? It didn't matter what the question was. We had it figured out, except for one question. The one question we couldn't answer was this question. Do you know you're going to heaven? And the answer I was taught was, well, we can't know that. We only hope we have done enough. Now, here's the irony. As I have grown in my understanding of God, and I think in my understanding of the gospel, I'm less sure about a lot of things, but I'm more sure about the only question I really want to be able to answer. Is my salvation secure? Because, you see, as I've understood the gospel, it's gone from, well, I hope I've done enough, to my hope is in Jesus, who's already done it for me. And this is what John wants us to know. It's like the story of the reporter that was interviewing this real successful uh, businessman. He says, tell me your story. He says, well, when my wife and I married, we had a roof over our head, we had good clothes on our back, and we had a nickel. And I went out and I bought an apple. And I shined that apple, and I sold it for 10 cents. And then I went out and I bought two apples and I shined them up and I sold them for 20 cents. And the reporter's thinking, this is a great human interest story. So he says, and what happened next? And the guy says, well, my father-in-law died and left me $20 million. (laughs) And the moral is, the reason I am sure about my salvation, the reason I am sure about my eternity, I have been born into a family where there's a great inheritance waiting for me. I didn't do it. I received it because I've been born into the family of God. And that's what John wants us to know. That it's because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not our morality. It's our faith in His deity and in His sufficiency. Now, how much does God want you to know this? Well, so much that God sealed the deal. That's the constant teaching of the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians 1, Paul says, When you heard the true teaching, the good news about your salvation, you believed in Christ, and in Christ... God put his special mark of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit that he'd promised. And that Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive what God promised for his people. Side note, churches that teach that you don't receive the Holy Spirit are the same churches that teach you can't know if you have eternal life. Because the two go together. God wants you to be so sure that Jesus has settled the most important question. He sent the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Here's the deal. You're either going to be born once and die twice. Or you're going to be born twice and die once. And so John says, you've already had the only death that really matters. You died in Christ and you were born again. 
And so your eternal life, it is sure, it is settled, it is a present possession. You can know this. You've heard me tell the story of the guy driving in the Midwest somewhere and he's not sure where he is. So he stops the car, sees a guy on a tractor and yells at him and says, Hey buddy, if I head down this road, will I get to St. Louis? And the guy on the tractor says, I don't know. Well, if I go down this road, will I get to Kansas City? I don't know. Well, what big town will I get to if I stay on this road? And the farmer says, I have no idea. And the businessman's pretty upset and says, you just don't know much, do you? And the farmer says, I know I ain't lost. That's a good place to start. And that's where John starts. We know our salvation is settled. Second thing we know, our prayers get answered. We can be certain our petitions never interrupt God. He's an eager hearer and a cheerful giver. Look again at verse 14 and 15. We can be confident he will listen to us whenever we ask him for anything in line with his will. And if we know he's listening when we make our request, we can be sure he'll give us what we ask for. So John speaks of two certainties. One is hearing and one is having. We don't have to wonder if God hears us. We don't have to compel him to pay attention. We never get put on hold. We never get an answering machine. We have the confidence that he hears. And he says we have confidence that we have. If we ask it in line with God's will, then God's delay doesn't mean God's denied us. It's just a question of timing. It's like when your kids were little and they asked for something for Christmas and you'd already bought it. Now they don't have it yet, but you've already answered the request and God does that with us sometimes we ask for things he's already said yes he just hasn't given it yes because he knows when we need it the most see prayer is not about changing God's will prayer is about getting our will in line with God's will that's what it means to pray in Jesus name it's to pray for what we think Jesus would want and now John's going to illustrate what he means now put on your thinking cap for five minutes because we're getting into some heavy stuff I don't think it was heavy to John's readers. It's heavy to us because through the years we've lost something they understood. John says, let me illustrate what it means to pray in God's will and to pray not in God's will. You have a brother caught up in sin. You're supposed to pray for that. That's in God's will. Unless his prayer, his sin as a sin leads to death. Now don't pray about that because that's not God's will. Now you read that verse and you go, huh? And I know you're counting on me with all the research and thinking and study I've done to give you the answer. So here it is. Huh? (laughs) I I am not exactly sure. I think John's original readers knew exactly what distinction he was making. We're not sure. I'll give you some thoughts. Catholic theology says, well, he's talking about mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins are the big bad sins that will send you to hell. Venial sins, they're little sins. They're not so bad. They're still bad, but you go to purgatory, you pay those off and still go to heaven. Well, there's a problem with that. Nowhere in the Bible is there such a thing as big sins and little sins. On top of that, there's not one single example in the Bible of God ever refusing to forgive a truly penitent sinner, no matter what he did. I mean, David did a pretty big thing when he committed adultery and then murdered somebody. He was forgiven. Peter did the ultimate big thing. He denied Christ. He repented. He was forgiven. So I don't think that's what John means. Some say, well, maybe he's talking about physical death. Like Ananias and Sapphira, they sinned. It led to their death. If you see somebody sinning and it's going to lead to their death, don't pray about it. Well, 
Again, the problem is, number one, John never uses the word death like that. He always talks about spiritual death. And number two, how do you know what sin's leading to death and what sin isn't? I'm not that smart. Now, remember the context. John is writing to a church that is upset because some people left saying, we don't think anymore what you think about Jesus. This whole Son of God come in the flesh, we don't believe that. And they don't show love to the church they left behind. I think what John is saying is sometimes you got people out there who have rejected the truth about Jesus. He's not talking about they have struggles with the lordship of Jesus in one part of their life, like maybe their tongue or their sexuality or their finances or their temper. No, he says, you see somebody and they're having trouble accepting the lordship of Jesus in one part of their life, it is God's will you pray for them. But he's not talking about someone who's rejected the lordship of Jesus in one part of their life. He's talking about someone who's rejected any relationship with Jesus at all and with his church. You see, John has said what God wants is not that hard to understand. He summed it all up back in chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. It's not that complicated, people. God wants you to be sold out for Jesus. And he wants you to love Jesus' church. That's what he wants. Now, how can you pray in Jesus' name For God to bless somebody who isn't going to honor Jesus' name. That's the problem. But here's my problem. I'm too finite to know when somebody reaches that point. How do I know when someone has reached the point that it doesn't matter how much I pray, they've turned their back on Jesus and they're not turning around? I've seen a lot of people in my life that I would have told you there's no chance they'll ever come back to God, and they did. So here's my counsel to you. You keep praying unless the Holy Spirit gives you clear direction to take your prayer attention and give it to somebody else. You keep praying for your brother or your sister struggling. Don't forget his main point here, folks. Don't get sidetracked. The main point is We know that when we ask God for things in line with his will, God's going to give us the answer. And we know God wants us to pray for each other when we're struggling in obedience. If you see a brother or sister in this church and they're trapped in sin, that is not a reason for you to go gossip. It's a reason for you to go pray. Don't talk about your brother Go talk to God for your brother. And that prayer will protect you from having a critical, judgmental, self-righteous spirit. More than that, that prayer is a part of a resistance movement. Because prayer is an indispensable piece of spiritual warfare. That's what Jesus taught us. Remember the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 13? He taught us, don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us. From the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray for each other that we won't get trapped by the devil. But that's just not what he taught. It's what he did. The night before he died, he prayed this prayer in John 17, 15. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. But keep them safe from the evil one. 
Because you can be sure about one thing. The devil's vanquished, but he hadn't vanished. Amen? People ask me all the time, you've been at Rich and Hills 20 years. What's that church like? How's it going at Rich and Hills? That's a simple answer. Every day I'm reminded that God is alive, and every week I'm reminded the devil hasn't retired. He's still around. But there's one more thing we can be sure of, John says. We know our enemy cannot prevail. Satan is real, but so are his limitations. Look at verse 18. We know that those who become a part of God's family do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot get his hands on them. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die to lose people, but to win people. Now, we know ultimately Satan's defeat is complete and total and eternal. But John is saying we can live in Jesus' victory right now. That Satan's illegitimate jurisdiction isn't binding on us anymore. You see, when you were born again, you were brought into a new kingdom You were brought under a new dominion. You now live under a new authority. So what John says is it's time for you to start calling the devil's bluff. There's no excuse for you anymore to keep living in the same old sin. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Because you are under new authority. I'm watching ESPN years ago. Back when Shaquille O'Neal still played for the Lakers. And back in his prime, that giant man would get down under the basket there's nothing you could do he was so strong and tall except foul him he wasn't a good free throw shooter so teams would they'd foul him on purpose and he'd get angry one game I'm watching the highlights and about three different players have just been hacking him and he's angry and in the third quarter he takes his big fist and he swings at one of the players and fortunately missed him and when he did that This little short bald guy in a striped shirt ran up to Mr. O'Neill and did this and told him to leave the court. Now, who had more power? Mr. O'Neill had more physical power, more financial power, more influence in the world. He could have taken his hand and come down on that little guy's head and made him a splot there on the court. But that little guy told him to leave the floor and he did. Why? Mr. O'Neill had more power. That referee had more authority. That's what the devil doesn't want you to know. That you're not under his authority anymore. That his jurisdiction over you is illegitimate. And that's why John will not tolerate the thought that Christians just have to keep on sinning and they can't stop. Sin doesn't have jurisdiction over you anymore. Paul says, Romans chapter 6, our old Sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So you should consider yourselves dead to sin and able to live for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. No more of this talk. Well, I can't help it. I was just born that way. I'm sorry, friend. You've been born again. You can help it now. You're under new authority. Now, We know the whole world is still under the influence of the evil one. All you got to do is turn on the news, pick up a paper. All over the world, we see evidence every day the world is still under the control of the enemy. But we know also that our lives are given testimony to the truth. A new ruler is coming. 
to this world. And in fact, his, his reign is already being established. My daughter right now is in Rwanda with a group from Pepperdine University. And they're visiting some of the sites that are memorials to the horrible genocide back in 1994 when one million people died in civil war in that country. And so I read this week with interest a story out of Christianity Today. Let me show you this picture. The young man there, name is Mark. He's a Hutu. The young woman, Felicita, she's a Tutsi. The war between the majority Hutus and the minority Tutsis was a terrible thing. Within a month, while the world watched and did nothing, a million people died. Mark, as a young man, took a machete and killed 15 people, including her father, her uncle, her brother. And he would have killed her, but she found some bushes and hid and they couldn't find her. Later, Mark spent seven years in prison for his crimes, deservedly so. But a lot of these people in prison were boys. And so they released back a few years ago about 50,000 of these now men like Mark. How do you rebuild a nation so completely under the control of the evil one that they could murder a million of their own brothers and sisters? They've set up these reconciliation and healing meetings. One was led by Felicita's brother and Mark Wynn. And at that meeting, Mark found Jesus Christ. And he knew what he had to do. He had to go back to his village, knowing that if he went back, they might want to kill him and beg forgiveness. And so he did. But one person wouldn't see him. Felicita. She was so filled with anger, she wanted him to die, not be forgiven. But her brother, uh, ambassador for Christ, kept telling her, you need to forgive this man. And so one day recently they had a meeting. Mark got down on his knees. He confessed all of his crimes. And he asked for mercy. She placed her hand on Mark. She said, I forgive you. He says in that moment it was like a holy shower came over him and cleansed him. She says that after 10 straight years of nightmares and headaches every day, the day she forgave him, they stopped. They have become best friends. Their families eat together. Their kids play together. And they get on that bike and they ride all around Rwanda to villages And they tell the villages the only way to heal our country is to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I'm saying to you, the world may be under the control of the evil one, but the rightful owner of the world is reestablishing his legitimate reign. Things are beginning to lighten up. And you ought to see what it looks like when he comes back. Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. He's given understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we're in God because we're in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the only true God and He's eternal life. 
There's a reason we can know our salvation is settled, that our prayers are heard, that the enemy can't touch us anymore because we know that Jesus is the real deal. He's given us understanding of who the true God is. Now, if there's a true God, that must imply there are false gods, and there are. And that's why he closes his letter by saying, Dear children, keep away from idols. Now, what's an idol? It doesn't have to be something made out of wood or stone. An idol is any person or anything that has become your God substitute. That's become your functional Savior. When life gets hard, when you're upset... When you need something to rest on, where do you run? To the pantry? To the gym? To the mall? He says, verse 21, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. I want you to understand, loved ones. The goal of this letter is not to get you to stop sinning. The goal is to get you to start centering your life on the only true allegiance. Jesus Christ. It's the one thing you must be certain about. Let me say that again. The one thing you must be certain about. Is what God can save. Maybe you saw two weeks ago Elizabeth Dean passed away. The reason is significant. She was 97 years old. She was the last remaining survivor of the Titanic. She was just two months old when the ship went down. Her brother and her mother were saved. Her dad was drowned. 700 saved. 1,500 died. An incredible boat. It still fascinates no ship had ever been built with all her amenities. Mahogany lines, smoke rooms, swimming pools, squash courts. That boat had everything except the one thing it needed. Enough lifeboats to save people. It could give you a sweet, comfortable ride. It just couldn't do the one thing it most needed to do. That's the problem. With God substitutes. Do you know you have eternal life? John would ask it a different way. Do you know Jesus? You may not know it all. But if you know the all in all. You know enough. Now, Father, I pray in Jesus' name over this precious, precious church I have loved for 20 years. That if I have done anything right in 20 years, it's this. To get them to set their eyes on Jesus. No other substitute, no other functional Savior, just Jesus. He is the true and living reflection of you. He is the Savior of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the hope of eternity. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us set our hearts on Jesus. Because of your infiniteness, we will never fully know you, God. 
But everything we can know, we can know through Jesus. And we want to know it all. Hear our prayer because we think it's a prayer Jesus would pray. Amen. So, if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, if you're ready to be born again of water and spirit, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, go public on his deity. Just come down to the front right now. If you'd like some elders and church leaders to pray for you, they're going to wait for you back at the chapel. We're going to stand and sing. You can do that right now. Let's be standing.